New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, wet side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. The Dion Babies pose again exclusively for Pathé News with head nurse to Carolyn and Dr. Alan Roy Defoe, the country doctor whose care has brought them through their first year. He remailed them to you in exclusive motion pictures soon after they were born, at the age of five months, and now here they are approaching their first birthday, looking very dignified as wards of King George V. Yvonne and Annette. Cecile, Emily, and Marie. Marie, you know, is the personality girl. Just now, she's studying the advantages of thumb sucking. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the North Bay, Ontario, Canada of 1934. Once there, we'll witness a unique and risky series of births through the eyes of fictional midwife Emma Trimpany. Emma's perspective introduces us to the Dion family, their humble farmers eking out a living from the land, when they're blessed with not one, but five bundles of joy. In an age before the fertility treatments, prenatal care, and incubators that we take for granted, Yvonne, Annette, Cecile, Emile, and Marie create a global sensation as the first identical quintuplets to survive birth. It sounds adorable, and it was, but the story quickly turned dark. The Canadian government separated the babies from their parents and put them on display as the center ring act of a bizarre circus, a tourist attraction, one of those things you'd stop at on the roadside to snap a selfie today. Nobody could ask these tiny children if they wanted to be a money-making scheme to lift the spirits of their nation during the Great Depression. And nobody seemed to care if it was best for them. With World War II's clouds darkening on the horizon, people had other things to worry about than the lives and futures of five tiny girls. Our guide on this fictionalized journey with the Dion's is Shelley Wood, here to chat about her debut novel, The Quintland Sisters. Shelley Wood is a writer, journalist, and editor whose work has appeared in the New Quarterly, Room, The Antigonish Review, Bath Flash Fiction, and The Globe and Mail. She has won the Frank McCourt Prize for Creative Nonfiction, Freefall Magazine's Short Prose Contest, and Causeway Lit's Creative Nonfiction Prize. When she's not building the perfect sentence and vivid characters, Shelley Wood is editorial director and managing editor for the cardiology website tctmd.com, published by the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. 
Born and raised in Vancouver, she has also lived in Montreal, Cape Town, and the Middle East. Visit our guest online at ShellyWood.ca. Follow her at ShellyWood and the number two on Twitter. Or toss her a like at ShellyWood Author on Facebook. That's Shelly spelled S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. Okay, now that we've heard the news of this stork's big delivery in Quebec, let's join Shelly Wood and meet the Quintland Sisters. I'm joined via Skype from British Columbia, Canada, by Shelley Wood, author of The Quintland Sisters. Thank you for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. This is such a cool opportunity. Thank you so much for the offer. <laughs> well, it's, it's my pleasure, and I know that sometimes the first-time author has dreamed of these things, right? You're working. Writing is a very solitary thing. And you say someday you're going to be interviewed. And so for me to have you on and be able to welcome you into the forum, and I hope it makes it a little bit real for you that, yes, this is a real book. You just mentioned to me when we first connected that you just got your box of books. And now this book with this beautiful cover that's really going to draw people's eye. And I hope people will grab it off the shelf, maybe go as they're listening and take a look at it. It's a very cool cover. I love that. I love that you get a really solid first outing. People cared and really were loving about creating this book. And it caught me and I fell in love with it. I'm going to assume, though, that you churned through many ideas in various stages of completion before you finished, sold, and found a publisher for the Quintland Sisters. What is it about these five identical girls that caught your interest and held it through that long, solitary process of saying, yes, I am going to get a novel published and put it on the shelf? Okay, well, first of all, it's super embarrassing that you know how exciting it is to talk about this on the radio because it is absolutely a dream come true. <laughs> but yeah, the, the what drew me to this story was actually that I had never heard it before. So I had this dream of quitting my job and writing a novel, but I had no topic. I knew I had writing skills. I love writing. I'd written some short stories, but I didn't have an idea for a novel. So I took myself off to the library, as one does when one is at a loss, and I found a coffee table book called 100 Photos That Changed Canada. Most of the photographs in it, I absolutely recognize them. I, I think you're married to a Canadian, so you might recognize some of these as well, but yep. absolutely classic Canadian photos, and I knew the stories that went with them. But one photo was of five identical toddlers. It was an olden days sort of photo, so I knew it predated IVF and fertility drugs. And I read the blurb and just could not believe that I had led my whole life not hearing the story of the Dion quintuplets. And I started to ask around. And it did seem to me that a lot of people of my generation, especially living in Western Canada, the Dion quintuplets were born in Ontario in the East. But many people I talked to had never heard their story. And I just thought, how can that possibly be that this happened in Canada? To me, it seemed potentially like a story that might be forgotten. And, and was there a way I could get back into it, but in a fictional way, not as, as nonfiction? And that just set me going. I want to get to that part of it about you choosing to do it in a fictional way, because that's something that I love. I love historical fiction. And then today people can just go to the internet and they can look it up. They can watch some old newsreel footage here. They can see what becomes of the five identical sisters after they have finished reading the book. 
two midwives attended Mrs. Dion in this birth. She has a very unique name there. Say it for me. Elzira Dion. All right. That's a, that's a heck of a name. That's, that's already telling you that these people are not English-speaking members of the greater Canadian community at the time, because that's a name I had, I had not heard before, just as her births here are not something anyone has seen before, certainly not where we have these five babies surviving. So she's attended by two midwives who also have to be blown away, no matter how many times they've experienced this before. They thought maybe she had twins, right? And here they go, and, and it's, a, it's like having puppies, and they just don't stop. And they they keep coming. You create out of them 17-year-old Emma Trimpany. She's your point of view character. And I wondered how much those two real-life midwives informed her character. That's such an interesting question because my idea for Emma didn't come from those two midwives. Those two names are the names of the two midwives who assisted at the birth of Madame Dion. Um, And... I bet you they did influence some of my thinking, but almost in the perhaps opposite way, because I think Emma in the the first 40 pages of the book swiftly decides that midwifery is not for her. (laughs) You know, you can imagine you show up at a birth, you think this woman's going to have one child and she has five. Emma's quite traumatized by this. But the actual idea to have Emma be my protagonist in this book, and she is 100% fictional, was to really create somebody who could be inside the lives of the Dion girls from the absolute moment of their birth. I knew that's what I wanted, but she wasn't really taking shape for me until I came across an article. And I tell everybody this, I found this article once. I think I found it a second time, but I've never been able to find it again. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, I think it was written in the 70s or 80s. And there was a line of text that said, of all the people involved in the lives of the Dion sisters, was there not one person who loved them for who they were? And I thought, it's just the saddest line. And I thought, this can be my character. I will invent someone who comes and goes from their life, who loves them to bits, that is lost from the formal record in some way. That's Emma. And very different from what you might expect from a first novelist, honestly, because you take that minute and you do something that I just think is great and I always try to do and is really a treat for the reader where you take this character and you might think, okay, she's a 17 year old. Usually at that age, if you're a young woman, you're, you're thinking about your future life. You want to get married and babies are, are awesome. You're not that far away from playing with dolls. And yet she takes that right turn that makes a character real where she says, I, I don't want to have kids of my own. I don't want to get married and I don't, I don't want to have that life. And she really does therefore look at these girls as individuals instead of just looking at them as, hey, this is going to be a great opportunity to play dress up in pastels, which is the cover of the Quintland sisters right here. You know, she looks at them as people because she doesn't think she's going to be a surrogate mother for them, although she does all this mothering. It's something that brought her alive for me, as did this detail you added that you gave her a birthmark on her face. And I wanted to ask you where that came about, how you decided on that, because I think people hearing this right now, Emma has become a real person already to them, and that's not an easy thing to do. So where all this detail, how long did it take for her from that line in the article that you mentioned to grow into this 
three-dimensional, complicated character that we can enjoy and look through her eyes in the Quintland sisters. <laughs> I wish I could have written down the date where I came to feel that I knew who Emma was. I do remember really distinctly this conversation with my stepfather where I said I felt like I was hanging out every day with a bunch of people I didn't know and didn't like. <laughs> uh, but something something turned a page, turned a corner at some point. Emma's birthmark was really important to me because I had read that the so-called nurses who were at the Dion nursery, and as you may know, this was a facility that was open for nine years that became a tourist attraction in, in northern Ontario. And they were called nurses, the, the minders who stayed there for much of that time. And Emma becomes one of these nurses. But because I had read that there was incredible turnover, I thought, okay, well, how do I invent a character who could be a part of that turnover and yet isn't in one of the thousands of photos that were taken? Her name isn't a part of the sort of formal record, as I said. And, and I had this idea that if she had a birthmark across her face, she would always be hiding from view from those photographs. But she would also come to think of herself as invisible. She would imagine that nobody is noticing her coming and going because they don't like to sort of rest their eyes on her face I think she's fooling herself a little bit, but that was the idea behind this port wine stain that she was born with. I know, I know just how your mind works. Well, people are going to look at these pictures and want to see her, and I want to get her out of there. So that worked on so many levels for you, solved so many problems for you. And also something we can all relate to as readers. You can remember being 17. My gosh, you're, you're self-conscious about your hair and what you're wearing and all kinds of things, much less having a birthmark. And then for her, one of the reasons, as I mentioned, that you fold everything and all the details of her character together is you wouldn't want to have children if you're afraid you're going to pass that on. Yeah, that's part of it. I interviewed Winston Groom, for example, who gave us Forrest Gump, wrote the Forrest Gump novels. And there's a part of that in there where he says, you know, he, that's important to him to show he's afraid when he finds out that he has a child, that the child will be like him because he knows that he's not smart. He's just smart enough with a poor guy, right, to know that he's not smart. And so with her, it adds so much to it. And you feel for her because we don't we don't see her physically. It might be different if we saw her physically, but we're only seeing her through the book and we get to really like her and we don't want her to feel self-conscious. And she's the kind of person that if you knew them as a friend, you would say, you're beautiful. You're a wonderful person. You're great. It doesn't matter what you look like to us as readers. And that's a great accomplishment you made there. You mentioned listeners living outside Canada the nation is often seen as just this homogenous pink area on the map. It's up there. Santa Claus lives there. People have so <laughs> many great misconceptions, right, about Canada when Canadians travel the world. I've heard my wife ask many of those kinds of questions over the years. Uh, I'll throw my dad under the bus or the RV in this case where my dad was convinced when he met Kathy, he started asking her about her parents' RV. Don't they go RVing? Doesn't everyone in Canada go RVing? And it wasn't just once that he asked. He would ask her like a few times a few times about you know Funny. don't they have an rv no and then he met the people that became my in-laws her parents and they explained that no they didn't but then they they were nice enough to say they were thinking about it <laughs> so <laughs> but it was just things like that stick in your head and so this divide between the french and english-speaking canadians in the quintland sisters Maybe something new and interesting and even surprising to your readers who are outside of Canada. You said even being in B.C., this story had not filtered out there. That's not a French-speaking area of the country. So how was this separation viewed in light of 
the long list of slights that Quebec feels towards the British dating to the colonial wars. You look at the license plates of Quebec, it says, we will remember. So there's a lot about memories, a lot about the past, and that becomes a little bit of a factor here in the novel and definitely was a factor at the time. So explain that. How how did the parents feel? How did other Francophone Canadians feel about seeing these children taken away and made wards of the state? Yeah, you've really zeroed in on something that I think is so important to this story. It's something that English Canadians, I think, think about much less than French Canadians do. And I say that as an Anglophone in Canada. I was born in the West, but I did live in Montreal for several years and certainly had a sense of the friction between French and and English Canada. It's something that's always meant something to me. In this particular case, the Dion family was a French farming family. So working class, living in Ontario, which is actually considered more of an English province. I suppose English would be the dominant language, but they do have these large French communities. And this part of Ontario did have a French town called Corbeil, which was very closely located towards the English town of Calendar. My main character, not by accident, just as an aside, was born to a French mother and an an English father was my idea for her. I really wanted her to be absolutely bilingual, seeing this through those bilingual eyes. But the main thing that happened when the Dion quintuplets were born is that Canada became very interested in their story right away. The relative poverty of the family was an important issue as well, because quite early on, likely because he was so concerned about how to pay for the cost of keeping these extraordinarily frail babies alive, he made a deal with a Chicago promoter to exhibit the five baby girls at the Chicago World's Fair. And the media got a hold of this, and there was really just outcry in Canada that this could happen. And it led to the Ontario government stepping in and removing the babies from their parents. But this is, in some ways, not just about saving the lives of the babies. I think it also was very much about the power of English versus French, Protestant versus uh, Catholic, because, of course, it was a French Catholic family and a very large one, and really an issue of class. There was the idea that for these girls to survive, they needed to be in a more pristine, germ-free environment. So I think a lot of the pre-existing antagonism between French and English in this part of the world, unfortunately, was one of the drivers behind this, this incredible custody battle that erupted in the wake of that decision. And a nationalist feeling in Canada. People don't think of it that way from the outside. In my experience, people that I speak to don't get that there's a real national identity, but Canada does jealously guard it with things like creative content laws, which insists a certain percentage must be Canadian. That's actually what the old Bill and Doug McKenzie is actually <laughs> satirizing that. that you, that's why they put that in SCTV, just because they said, well, you have to have a certain amount of Canadian content. And so they decided they would just make a spoof of it. But you could see if another country is suddenly going to come up to Canada and pay you to bring these kids down when people immediately began to feel a connection to them in Canada, that the government would step in and say, no, we, how dare you sell them, basically. Although what they do is no better as far as claiming ownership over them. I mean, if anyone had was able to have a say, it should have been the parents, you'd think first, uh, if Absolutely. they weren't unfit, which is what Canada argues, right? So that's a tough thing. And then to see them, and then they end up putting them on display everywhere in the US anyway. So it's not really, but but they're the ones who are able to cash in on it. So that, that's, it's one of those books where there are so many things going on and you're, you're buffeted. And so that's why I think 
the way you crafted the Quintland sisters, people will keep flipping the page because you want some moral clarity. You want to get to something good that happens. And that helps you push your narrative along the whole way. Yeah, I think so. It's certainly a really troubling thing that happened in that initial, those initial first days of their lives. And there's a lot of French and English antagonism to this day over that decision. And a quick aside, since this is a first-time author, so we have to encourage our first-time authors and give them a lot of kudos for the things they did Thank because they, they haven't heard that along the way. By the time you get to you know that second Forrest Gump book or something like that, you've already heard it all. So I want to always take that opportunity and say a little thing like this, making a character the product of a mixed French and English marriage that's a that's perfect too. It gives you so many more opportunities. Now she's even more on the outside, more of an outsider than she would be just from that birthmark or just from the fact that she doesn't care to get married. So that that's great crafting of her character. Again, she's somebody I think people will really enjoy. And even though the Quintland sisters, this is a book made for her, I think people are going to be sorry when they don't get to see her anymore. She's the kind of character, like Stephen King says, people ask, whatever happened to so-and-so? And he says, as if I get postcards from them from time to time, like nothing happens. The book's over. They weren't real, remember? <laughs> but she is so real and was so real to me that I just wanted to compliment that a little bit. And I hope it's wetting people's appetites to pick up the Quintland sisters and experience this English-French mix. Well, and, thank well, you're you. It's, it's my pleasure to praise good books. But yeah. I, will, I will shift back from book fan and reader to being an interviewer and ask you something else about Emma. And that's the sameness of the quintuplets is the draw that keeps the money pouring into Ontario. That's what makes them a curiosity. They are indeed identical. So from a scientific perspective, they're they're coming from the same egg that is split multiple times as I go, and they incredibly are, are brought to term, which is very rare at this time without incubators and modern medicine, much less fertility drugs. I discovered that Emma searched for exactly the thing that I wanted to know, which made me feel good about myself, made me feel like I was getting the right lesson out of the book, had the right perspective. And that was what makes each of these human beings, each of these little souls, aside from their DNA, unique. And that's something that she tries to search for. And I noted here on the cover of the Quintland Sisters that they are all wearing different shades of pastel, a little similar, but each one is a unique individual. So when you're juggling characters... That's tough enough. You're going to have multiple people. Some names may be similar. Here you have already, right off the bat, two parents and five kids, and then they have other siblings that aren't part of their group. That's pretty tough. You have five identical characters. They have fixed names, so you're not able to play with that. You want to, even though it's fiction, stay within the bounds of what really happened. How did you meet the challenge of demonstrating their individuality in the limited space of a novel so you could develop their characters or show who they really were, rather, just the way you did Emma, your fictional heroine? Sure. So a couple things at play. The, the different colors of the quintuplets, that was actually done for the public and even for the doctor and nurses that cared for them. They oh. couldn't tell them apart. So they dressed them in different colors to help with that. But for me, in terms of developing their characters, I didn't do the work here. I can't take credit for it. I really tried to do as much research as possible into what their different characteristics were. And my book, of course, only covers the first five years of their lives. So they're very young. 
of course, I fictionalized some of it. But one of the things I read repeatedly in my research was from the Dion sisters themselves, their frustration at always being considered a group of five and never considered to be individuals. So it's really important to me that my, my protagonist, Emma, clearly saw them as individuals and loved them uniquely one by one, rather than lumping them all together. <laughs> I'm glad you think I've developed them individually, because that's what I would like people to take away, that these weren't a unit. They weren't a set of dolls. They were five little girls, separate little girls. I like to ask novelists to read a little bit of their story for us, not just to give a flavor of their writing, but because what they choose tells listeners a little bit about what they find important and maybe one of their what they call candy bar scenes. I'm not sure if that's one writer in particular's term for it, but the you know the thing that keeps you writing through the exposition because you want to get to this exciting part of the book. So set up this section that you've chosen of the Quintland sisters and have at it. Thank you so much for the chance. I actually have done very little reading of my own fiction, so this is a good test for me. Ah. Um, so this scene happens somewhere in the middle of the book, and I think many of your listeners will know that what happened with the Dion quintuplets is they were moved, as I said, to this public nursery across the street. They actually did not leave the premises for the first five years of their lives, if you can imagine. Wow. In that time, this tourist industry grew up around them, and the word Quintland actually refers to the name given to the whole stretch of road and what it became as these girls became one of the biggest tourist attractions in North America. I mean, I'm saying Fred Astaire came to visit them, Amelia Earhart came to visit them. If I'm remembering correctly, a Japanese prince even changed his travel plans to cut through <laughs> Canada to get to Europe. This is how popular they were. So this passage is set in uh, June 5th, 1937, so approximately three years after the babies were born. This is what Quintland looked like. The public viewing time had ended more than 90 minutes earlier, but the parking lot beside the farmhouse was still teeming with cars of every model and shade. Visitors were milling around the troughs newly filled with Dion souvenir pebbles, swatting at the black flies and snapping pictures of the farmhouse, the nursery, and everything else in between. Our truck attracted no small amount of attention when the guard opened the second gate to let us pull out. Mr. Cartwright Sr. waved gamely at the tourists, but I kept my gaze fixed straight ahead my birthmark, I hope, in shadow. For as far as I could see, a line of cars inched in the direction of calendar, the tired faces of children pressed against the rear windows. I had heard the other staff talking about an Algonquin chief who had pitched his teepee across from the makeshift carpentry that passed for a tourist information hut on a corner of the Dion property. Sure enough, a regal Indian sat cross-legged on a red blanket set back from the roadside, poker-faced in full regalia, the breeze stirring his headdress. A large sign on the ground beside him read, professional photos, 50 cents, own camera, 25 cents. A group of older boys, their shirt tails untucked, appeared to be heckling the man, trying to get a smile out of him, while others inspected his tent and queued to get their pictures taken. Next to the man was a long line of wheeled carts, tables, and makeshift stands, local folk selling homemade preserves, candy bars, cigarettes, hard-boiled eggs, folding fans, buttermilk biscuits, harmonicas, postcards, Cracker Jack, ashtrays, sun hats, tea cozies, soda pop, embroidery, candy apples, whirly gigs, and lemon meringue pie by the slice. 
a jowly man in full tails and a top hat, was pacing back and forth through the traffic, bellowing at the top of his lungs. Ladies and gentlemen, just 15 more minutes until feeding time. 15 minutes. Step up and see Rupert the Bear tuck into his supper. On a wooden platform wobbling over a patch of scrub brush was the sorriest-looking brown bear I'd ever seen, scrawny and bedraggled, his coat dull, lumbering listlessly at the limit of his short chain. A youngster in a sailor suit dangling a blue balloon on a string stood transfixed, his eyes glued to the bear, while his mother tugged vainly at his sleeve. The air smelled of dust and automobiles, mixed with fairground smells, hay and horse, popcorn, hot dogs and cotton candy. Despite the warmth of the evening, I cranked my window closed. Now, having read some of your background material and hearing you read that, which you did excellently, by the way, when you go there to what was Quintland, you mentioned, I believe, that you drove right past it, right? There's not, There wasn't much left when you first went there. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's really one of the, the tragedies is that that scene that I described, I think, was probably pretty true to life. And yet, when I went and visited that section of road between Calendar and Corbet, the nursery, believe it or not, is still standing. The structure is still there and looks lived in. The Midwives Pavilion, which was a, a souvenir stand, it's also a building that still stands. And yet there's not a single sign on the road to tell you that this was once the famous Quintland. Um, there's no acknowledgement that this, this ever took place in history. And, and I just think that's truly bizarre. No historic plaque, nothing. In fact, they moved the house. Was it their yeah. original house? They moved it? The house was moved and became a museum for many years, then was actually shut down and then has recently been moved again. And I don't believe it's reopened yet. It's been moved to downtown North Bay, Ontario, which is about, uh, I guess, 15 miles from this original scene. But that's the actual farmhouse they were born in that has become the official Dion Quintuplet Museum. And I know that two of the sisters are still surviving and they hope that it will remain a monument to what happened to them and remind people to Think of how we treat children and, and remember this event that it's so easy to forget. You talk about that carnival atmosphere, and I like how you trick the reader a little bit there and talk about feeding time, and and then we have a bear there. So it really makes the zoo atmosphere that's happening and the way they were treated like they were just specimens in the zoo, and they're real little human beings. It just happens they all are the same DNA. They all look the same. Exactly. At one point in the Quintland Sisters, the Quintuplets doctor bristles at Emma's question about whether they'll be charging admission to see the quintuplets. And we can get from what you just read that that is indeed the case. The Dion story has often been compared to a reality show, but for me, it brought to mind 1998's The Truman Show because the infants don't ask for this. They don't want to be put on display. They have their whole lives altered. They're ripped from their family for so long that they can never go back. When they finally give them back, I guess they're around nine. They're not a family anymore. They're just strangers to their own parents and to their other siblings. And a reality show, I think we picture, even if the parents are exploiting the kids and we wonder why people do those shows, it's more controlled and there's somebody at least that's saying that they want to do it and the families stay together for those things and do whatever un apparently or supposedly unscripted things they do in those shows. Why was there no one like Emma that went to bat for these defenseless children in the real world? I really don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a sort of fascinating question at the core of this whole story. I will clarify that, in fact, they did not charge admission. This was a, a sort of free viewing platform that people could walk through a corridor is what it was like. And in fact, the revenue really came through their fame. 
So it's estimated that the Ontario government made an estimated half a billion dollars in revenues to tourism and the sort of trickle-down effect of having so many people visit. But they didn't actually charge admission to get in, and I think that was something that they often reminded the world about, oh, we're not charging. But they certainly were not creating any barriers for people to come and see them, nor were they giving sort of sober second thought to whether this was good for the Dion sisters themselves. Is that in 1937 dollars or in our dollars, half a billion? Uh, that's in the currency of the time. In the, so I actually didn't wow. need to do the math there, but it's an extraordinary sum. And they justified that in that they felt they needed to really plump up the Dion coffers so that they would never want for anything. They had the girls do all the endorsement deals because they, they argued that, oh, they needed the revenue to keep the nursery running and to make sure that there was money in the bank. But honestly, this was a very expensive nursery to run. I think that this whole argument probably falls down sharp poke. You're enjoying my coast-to-coast chat across the 49th parallel with Shelley Wood, author of The Quintland Sisters, a novel. Visit our guest at ShelleyWood.ca. Follow her at Shelley Wood with the number two on Twitter. Or toss her a like at Shelley Wood Author on Facebook. That's Shelley spelled S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. Joanna Goodman, author of The Home for Unwanted Girls, writes of the Quintland sisters, quote, From the moment Shelley Wood introduced the remarkable Dion quintuplets, I was utterly captivated. She goes on to say, I could not get this story out of my head long after I finished reading it, which is another thing every author wants to hear. So, Shelley, the Quintland sisters, you succeeded. It is indeed captivating. Since you've worn so many different hats in your career, writer, journalist, editor, and now novelist, I wonder how you went about using those skills that you developed that you'd put into your toolbox, so to speak, and took them and cobbled together a fictional eye, gave yourself the ability to see these important things in character so that you got to know the people. How did you put that together and decide you were going to tackle this and tell the story you wanted to tell, even though, obviously, if it's your first novel, everyone has a first, you hadn't done it before? Well, thank you so much for giving me that quote from Joanna Goodman. It was a real treat to get her endorsement, that's for sure. And indeed, I have been a journalist and editor for many years and had always wanted to write a novel. And I like to think that the writing skills I honed in my day job did help make this switch to fiction. Actually, the news stories themselves were a huge part of the draw to this because the international media was so invested in the lives of the Dion's. So every day when I approached my computer with the word count that I wanted to get done, I would actually look at the news of the day. In particular, I focused on the Toronto Star newspaper, which really had a very, very close relationship to this whole story. They actually sent a full-time photographer to live in North Bay and had the rights to the photos of the quintuplets for North America. At one point, one of the star sort of uh, fixers became the fund manager for the Dion Quintuplet Fund. So if you're picking what I'm laying down here, it's that the media wasn't just covering this story. They're absolutely embedded within it. (laughs) And as I quickly saw, were a huge part of, of just generating the interest that ultimately kept these sisters in the public eye. What I wanted to do was use those factual articles and weave my fictional story around them. 
By the way, it's not the Canadian dollar, but I did look up while you were answering my question, and half a billion dollars is $8.74 billion in American dollars today. So That's extraordinary. A staggering amount, and you think of it in comparison to what the Canadian economy would have been at the time, and it sounds even more impressive. Oh. That, that's a ton of money. I mean, it's a ton of money today. Height of the Great Depression, yeah. right? I mean, most people were living very hand-to-mouth in that decade. Speaking of research, you put articles at the front of the chapters and the sections in the Quintland Sisters to give readers an idea of what's happening in the contemporary world at the time your plot is unfolding. Those articles flesh out the historical part of the historical fiction. And for me, I'm somebody who can spend hours just sitting on newspapers.com or Nexus Lexus and reading old news stories. I just love those. That's your origin of your story, origin of your interest in this, right? Those are always such gems. But here's the challenging part. How do you go about whittling what I imagine is probably a big file full of PDFs of old newspapers? How do you go about getting in there, putting aside the ones you don't need? Do you have a star system that I know Candace Millard has when I spoke to her? You know, five stars down to one, what you might use. How do you do that so that you chose just the right pieces that would advance your narrative without distracting from it or you seeming like you wanted to show all your research? Well, you're absolutely right. It was so hard to choose because I'm, it sounds like you do the same thing. But when you read these old newspapers, they are just fascinating. And it was so easy to get distracted by the other news of the day, especially as it got closer to World War II. But what I ended up doing was nothing so strategic as your other author, I think, because I used so many in my first draft and then really had to go back and whittle them out and ultimately settled on articles that I thought were really moving the plot forward. And also, I really wanted these real newspaper articles to kind of be the signposts of the sort of factual events at the same time that I was weaving a fictional story around them. And what I think is interesting about these newspaper articles is it's not as if they were doing what we expect of the media, which is sort of holding the government and individuals to account. I mean, they weren't asking why on earth these little girls were growing up in this sort of fishbowl world called Quintland, but instead were really driving the attention in many ways towards this, this fanatical circus-like interest in these five girls. So I chose articles that really spoke to being the momentum behind the spectacle as well as ones that just were so outlandish in, in the types of things that they were reporting. But you're right, it was really difficult to choose. It jumps out at me that you say that about the news stories of the era, because I love reading those. And yet, in a way, that sensationalism, that desire to really get at the little personal nagging here in New York City, for instance, we had so many dailies in those days that they were all competing with each other and facts go by the wayside and totally. they weren't interested in that hard investigative reporting that we idealize that we really hope for we we expect to at least be able to find it somewhere right something that's solid reporting and i never thought of the victims quite so clearly before as we see here with the quintland sisters where nobody's going to ask a tough jacob reese like question about how the other half lives and is this moral everybody just seems to be in a big feeding frenzy just to get the coverage of the circus. 
Absolutely. That's really what it looked like for years and years on end. And, you know, it was one of the articles in the book is the there's only one that really asks a tough question. And that's the New York Times in an editorial. And it was several years into the whole spectacle. And ironically, it was the New York Times was the only newspaper that charged me to have the uh, permission to use the newspaper article in my book. So that's an ironic side note. <laughs> well, worth it, though, because it, it was the only place yeah. to get it. They knew what they had. I guess. I've seen the Quintland sisters described as a coming of age story. And can you imagine coming of age isn't hard enough where you're just a regular person here where you're at the center of this big, crazy circus, to use that word again, and you really care about the girls and you're just stuck in it. So for Emma, as we talked about before, her Life is so unique. You built her as a real flesh and blood character. That's what I felt as I read through the Quintland sisters. But you also have a lot of moving parts there in the plot. So in a way, I can almost see you saying as an author, well, let me just leave all that out. Let me leave her personal life out of it. Maybe choose an older character. It's years here we're talking about with these girls. This is not a weekend where they go away and go on a tour to the Chicago World's Fair. This is years and years. She's changing. These are big years in any person's life. What did you hope that exploring Emma's awakening as she grows up alongside the quintuplets would add to your novel? Well, I think just starting with a 17-year-old, I mean, I have a 17-year-old niece, so I know I have some insight into what this um, age is like, because they seem like they know everything, but they really know nothing. <laughs> and so by having Emma be that age, she thinks she understands everything around her. But instead, as you say, in the five years that we, we spend with her, you see her perspective slowly shifting. And she really provides the reader with the eyes inside the Dion nursery to start from a place of just absolute love and wanting to help these girls survive and, and thrive. And then as time goes on, we see that Emma unwittingly becomes to some extent, like many of the people around her, she does to some extent profit off the little girls, even though she tells herself that she's doing it for all the right reasons. And without giving anything away about the ending, I think there is a little bit of a narrative arc in Emma that echoes some of what goes on with the quintuplets in real life. Um, my book only covers the first five years of their lives, but we very much have with them a situation too when they, they do finally leave the nursery. Life isn't rosy. It's not the solution to have them move home with their parents. And I really leave that to the reader to discover what happens in the real version of, of the, the Quintland sisters when life moves on. Think of those years too, five years from 17 to 22, how much a person changes. So it's a so great age. I, yeah. I'm sure you sat there trying to think what age you should make her, right? So I <laughs> think you choose changed. a great age. Yeah. Right? I think I started out yeah. when she was a bit older and then she shifted younger. And then I, it's one thing I noticed, it's kind of hard to keep track of the age of your characters. You kind of need to plot it out every now and then take a look at your Excel spreadsheet and figure out where they are. But yeah, in the end, I think this was, it just worked out perfectly. And to change each year, too. I'm thinking of it as you're talking about, Emma, that 17 has a feel, right? 18, 19, 20, 
21, 22, 23, you know, those ages, 10 is different than nine, all mm-hmm. of those ages when you're that age. Whereas when you get older, eh, 30 year old and a 35 year old or a 25 year old, there's not quite as much of a difference or a 28. We tend to remember the milestones. So I was watching her as she grew. And as you said, becoming self-aware, you have that first realization that you don't know everything. Maybe the first time somebody calls you ma'am. And also she has these little girls growing up right around her. So she's noticing changes in them and that has to impact her as well, especially in this strange situation where there's five of them. Yeah. And she's adamant that she doesn't want to have children. She's not going to grow up. She's not going to get married and have kids herself. And yet she totally falls for these little girls and becomes their de facto mother for the time that she's there. So it's, it's really complicated on a lot of levels, I hope. But that's certainly what I was aiming for. Well, you hit it. <laughs> you hit it. I read it. I know. I could tell you, but it's good that you don't tell yourself, I guess, you know, because you have to keep trying. That's how you write great fiction or write great anything or do anything well, is you keep trying to work at it and keep tinkering and, and working on it with the little details. And then the big things hopefully will all come together. <laughs> the generations who flock to see the Dion's are all but gone, which is indicated by the decades that have passed since a book addressed their one of a kind story. I believe the last one was in the late 90s, so it's been quite a while. You therefore had the responsibility of reintroducing them to a nation that had never even had that keyhole view of their lives. All those pictures of them come across their newspaper pages as they flipped through, or the magazines certainly had never gone to Quintland. So in many cases, like your own with that newspaper article, people had no idea what their tragic story was all about. I can tell you have great affection for the Dion's and a reverence for their suffering, for their experience being torn away from their parents, being put on display. This is why you invented Emma to go back and time travel for you, be in their lives and advocate for them, at least some. After you have that moment of realizing, hey, this is a great idea, publishers will tell me this hasn't been done to death, we're interested in this, you hopefully get that hook with somebody through your process to publication. How did wanting those children to have their story told now to a new audience influence your approach to writing the Quintland Sisters, especially since by that point, I assume you'd read so much about them in all those news articles that you probably had to take a step back and remember how you were when you picked up that first one. Yeah, to be totally honest with you, I had no idea that they were still so widely remembered and that people were still so invested in their story. And that's true for the entire time that I was writing the book. In my mind, this was a forgotten story. And most people I spoke with, especially living on the west coast of Canada, so many people I spoke with had never heard about it. So it's not as if I thought, oh, publishers will eat this up. I really didn't know. I mean, that sounds crazy now because I, I don't know if you know, but in the first week, this became the number one bestseller in Canada, which for me has wow. been... congratulations. Yeah, it's been mind-boggling. But it's also really introduced me to so many people who care so deeply. So what I had to do was something different or what I wanted to do, because as you've alluded to, there have been a number of other books published about them. And as far as I know, not many fictional ways into their story, although Louise Penny, a mystery writer, did write a novel that's based on them, although the names are changed in some way. And I haven't read it. I purposely didn't read it when I was writing my own fictional version. Smart. Yeah. But I did think that different people read fiction as a rule. I, I myself enjoy both, but I know there's sort of diehard fiction readers out there 
who might never come across a nonfiction account of these girls. And so partly my approach was to introduce new people to this story, but with the caveat that they, they should then jump on the Google machine afterwards and, and find <laughs> out more about the true story. I wanted to mention your author's note because speaking about that real history is a great segue into the Canadian government eventually giving the three surviving sisters in 1998 $4 million as well as a formal apology, which may have meant more than finally getting some compensation for that stolen childhood. I can't imagine how they lived their lives after being on display for all that time, taken away from their parents. It's no wonder that they're not running around today doing press tours. And maybe that's one reason they were forgotten a little bit, because they they wanted to withdraw from the public life and have a chance to just be people, be individuals for a change. Sadly, however, you write in your author's note that today Sister Cecile subsists off a basic government pension. I know that you don't want to be, as you said about Emma, the latest in this long line of people that exploits them for your own gain. You didn't do this because you said, let me take them and I'll use their story and I'll get it to be number one. You wanted to tell your story, tell Emma's story, and do it all against the backdrop of these tragic lost childhoods, while also showing the Dion's the respect that they always deserved and too late actually received. I understand that you sent copies of your novel to the surviving two sisters. If you could speak to those 83-year-old women today, what would you like them to say to you and hope to hear them comment about reading the Quintland sisters and how you treated their story? Yeah, I really don't know that I'll hear from them at this point, given that it's some time ago now that I reached out. And honestly, they don't need to say anything to me. I understand how much they would want their privacy, having lost so much of that in their younger years. But if I had the chance to, to say to them in person what I said to them in my letter, it would be that my aim was always to make sure that their story isn't forgotten. And I can understand people levying the charge at me that I'm exploiting them further. But I suppose many artists are accused of of doing this type of thing. And maybe I'll be numbered among them. But truly, my hope was that I could introduce a new generation of people to this chapter in Canadian history, which, as I think I mentioned earlier, I really feel that it's not being marked as somberly, perhaps, as it should be. If you visit Quintland, you know, there's there's nothing on that road to tell you that this was ever such a, a crazy tourist attraction. Hopefully this book not only makes people remember their story and seek out perhaps their biographies that they've written over the years, and their long-wished-for hope is that no other children would be treated the way they were. Let's hope that by putting this story out there, it'll be a reminder to people that children deserve our, our support and our protection no matter how special they appear to be to the outside world. And you're also giving money to the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. So that's one more good reason to pick up the Quintland Sisters. You'll not only be getting a great story to enjoy and a taste of real history, but you'll also be helping some kids in need. That's a nice little thing that you did. In addition, it's one thing to write a letter and say that you're trying to do this so people will take a positive lesson from their example, but you wanted to do a little something extra, I guess. Yeah, I mean, even just hearing you say it, it sounds kind of token, but I did really grapple with this, and I I spent quite a bit of time researching what would be a a worthy charity to support. 
Um, I did say in my letter to the Dion sisters that if there was a different charity they'd prefer, that I would absolutely direct my donation that way. So who knows, maybe they will get in touch and, and let me know of another idea at some point. I'm, I'm certainly open to it. I hope so for your sake, because I think it would be just a nice thing for you as an author. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to any type of reaction, and, and certainly that's true both of the sisters and also the wider public. I was trying to put a positive spin on it. Now <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, I really believe in my project, and um, I'm, I, mostly I just want people to feel something, you know? If they feel anger, great. If they loved it, great. But the worst would be if they just weren't moved by it at all. Yeah. And it's also a Canadian story, too. So it, unfortunately for them, it does belong to everybody. Maybe they wish that it didn't. But it's also a story of how they're treated by their own government at the time and the thing they do to their parents and to yeah. them. So it's not just about them. They unwittingly, I guess, like anything, like a victim of, of any crime or anything that happens in the public eye, it just becomes owned by everybody. Everybody has their story to tell. It takes a life of its own, that's for sure. We have time for one final question so I can get back to reading the Quintland Sisters and finish it. I stop about three quarters of the way through so that I won't give away the end. So I've been very anxious to speak to you and get back to flipping those last pages, especially now you tell me I'm going to get to see Emma's character arc complete. So I'll ask this quick and you can answer and then I can hopefully get back to the book. Sounds good. I, <laughs> in some novels, a reader buys the book before boarding a flight, finishes it in the air, and they forget it by the time they reach baggage claim. You were just speaking about how you want the Quintland sisters to have an enduring effect on your readers. As Joanna Goodman said in that review, your novel sticks with readers long after that last page, which is exactly how you crafted it, we now know. What final word would you like to give those readers to contemplate as they reflect on the Quintland sisters and seek out some of the facts on the Google machines, to quote you earlier, behind the fiction that you've so expertly weaved here? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head, I think, because I just want to emphasize this is a work of fiction, and I have used real-life names fictitiously. I have tried to create a world that, that is true to the time and true to the events that took place in those first five years. But they need to remember this was a novel written to inform and entertain. And jumping on Google is absolutely what people should do afterwards. And if possible, seek out the books that the quintuplets themselves did write all those years ago. They're both co-authored with different writers. Ultimately, this is their story. And if you can get your hands on some of those, I think it's a fascinating read. But they're not that easy to find. So check out your library and, and dig around online, perhaps. But keep looking. <laughs> and I'd encourage people to check you out on Twitter, check out your website, and I'm sure that they can find things as they unfold there. I know I'll certainly be tweeting out some of the pictures as I share the story and as I promote our interview, which I've wildly enjoyed. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, Shelley Wood, author of The Quintland Sisters, Thank you so much for bringing to life the true story of the Dion quintuplets for a generation that will be meeting them for the first time. They're not curiosities anymore, but they're seen hopefully through fiction like yours and other stories when we look back. As individuals who are just caught up in a quirk of DNA, your book does what I love in historical fiction. It entertains us with a good story, and it also stimulates readers to learn more about the human stories that shaped our world, about all those people that are 
lost faces in black and white photos or people in those news stories that we love to flip through. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I look forward to your sophomore novel. So I hope you'll get to work on that, and we can speak again maybe next year. I'm putting the pressure on. Oh, thanks so much, Dean. (laughs) I think it might take more than a year, but I would certainly love to speak with you again. It's been a real treat. Oh, thank you. The treat was mine. The babies sit up to receive visitors and hold court like five little queens. Let us present them to you. Left to right, Annette, the good-natured, Yvonne, the biggest, Marie, full of mischief and just a trifle off balance, Emily, who is demure and retiring except when she's trying to beat her sister's cutting teeth, and Cecile, who can outkick the whole bunch of them. Again, the book is The Quintland Sisters, a novel. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon and amazon.com or amazon.ca gives us a small portion of every dollar or loony you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart for just those few extra taps of your finger. You can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Shelley Wood for joining us and for bringing us this fictionalized view of the Dion Quintuplets' unparalleled childhoods. It's a novel that will hook readers on their real history and spark curiosity about this sensation that started on a hard scrabble farm in pre-World War II Canada. Visit our guest at ShellyWood.ca. Follow her at ShellyWood and the number two on Twitter. That's ShellyWood and the number two. Or toss her a like at ShellyWoodAuthor on Facebook. That's Shelly spelled S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor, or on Instagram, where I posted a really cool picture of the Quintland sisters, by the way. So feel free to go check that out. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the Regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore.